All right, everybody, we are headed into June and looking forward to this series that God has led on my heart for the month of June. Uh, I'm excited about <clears throat> getting into the life of Elisha, and our series is called Double Portion, and as we look at this prophet's life, uh, we're going to begin this morning with the call of Elisha, and so let's head toward 1 Kings chapter 19 where we'll look at the passage together, 1 Kings chapter 19. We had a great start to our summer kids club in the 9.30 slot this morning uh, as we visited Ukraine. And next Sunday, Lord willing, we will have a live report from Brazzaville in the Republic of Congo. And so I hope all you boys and girls will invite a friend to come with you next Sunday. Uh, you and your friend will both receive a cool prize, and you'll have tons of fun together. I mentioned also on July 10th at 5.30, we have our annual business meeting with an ice cream social to follow. And everybody who attends Centennial is invited to come to that meeting. First Kings chapter 19, and let's read here just three verses, starting in verse number 19. So he departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him, and he with the twelve. And Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. But he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? And he returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people and they did eat. Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. Now it is evident that God had a specific purpose for Elisha's life just like he does for your life. And what is so special about Elisha is that he was passionate about participating in God's purpose for his life. And that could only be said of a select few people. Uh, I guess uh, that's the bad news, but the good news is that participating in God's purpose for your life requires no special skills. It simply requires availability and dependability. And uh, you got to be willing to do it, you got to be faithful to do it. And everybody's got different talents and skills. Uh, some people can play instruments. Some people can play spoons. Some people can play the radio. Everybody's got a different talent, right? Uh, but God just asks us to be faithful. And as we walk through this passage today, we're going to see four important steps uh, in the words of Scripture. First, we see that Elisha was formed by God. He was formed by God. Go back with me to verse number 15, and I want you to see uh, what's happening here. Elijah, the prophet before Elisha, was at the lowest point of his life after he had called fire down from heaven and experienced a great victory over the false prophets of Baal in chapter 18. If we go on to chapter 19, we find that he's on the run from wicked queen Jezebel, right? And if Jezebel is after you, Elijah said, you run, 
Okay, and I don't know if that's, that's what God said, but Elijah, that's what he said. And things got so bad for Elijah that he sat down under a juniper tree and prayed that God would take away his life. God knew that the cure for Elijah's misery was to have something to do, some work to accomplish. And by the way, that is often the cure for discouragement. Find someone to serve or someone to bless. When you have too much time on your hands, uh, your mind will go negative on you. Uh, Bob Jones Sr. said that an idle mind is the devil's workshop. And if you wonder why we have so many problems in the Western world, it is because there are a lot of people with way too much time on their hands. Okay? You know why they don't have as many problems in the third third world? Because they work six days a week, about 10 to 12 hours a day. And when they got home, they got no trouble for mischief. They don't have any time for video games or internet. They just go to bed. And when the rooster crows, they get up and do it all over again. But in this pampered society we live in, people think that a 30-hour work week is such a strain, right? It'll limit my game time. It'll limit my sports. And, and, you know, an idle mind will either take you to the imagination of evil, like it did to the people in Noah's day, or it'll take you to depression and discouragement. And if you look around in America today, and I've looked around recently, we have more depression in this country than we have ever had before. You know why? Because people have all day to sit there and think about how bad they are compared to the person on social media who just had this great victory, right? Who just went on this magnificent trip. And, and we compare ourselves and we get discouraged. And, and so Elijah, God said, listen, don't sit there, Elijah. Get busy. Go do something. When you sit around, you'll get discouraged or lazy or mischievous. But when you have something important to do, you're less likely to fall into those traps. And so God gives Elijah a new task. And here's his task, verse 15. The Lord said unto him, go. Okay, so he gave Elijah a one-word move. He said, go. Go return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And so God gave him a task. And if you notice, as we saw there, God's first word is go. And by the way, that is the first word of the Great Commission as well. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And I would submit to you that Christians who are facing discouragement and depression should go tell somebody about Jesus. Go serve someone with the the hands and feet of Jesus. Go be the body of Christ in the community. And when you do that, amazingly enough, you begin to realign God's will and God's purpose in your life. Uh, God had three people that he wanted Elijah to anoint for special roles. And we saw this, Haziel, king of Syria, Jehu, uh, king of Israel, Elisha to be God's prophet once Elijah was gone. God clearly knew that Elisha was the right guy because he had formed him. 
Before Elisha was ever thought of by anyone on this earth, God had fearfully and wonderfully designed him with a passionate heart, with natural abilities, a gentle personality, and those things all combine with the experiences that God had allowed into his life thus far. And now, here's Elisha. He doesn't know it, but God knows that he's ready to have Elijah's mantle thrown on him. And this was a symbolic gesture that was used in adoption back in these ancient times. Uh, A father who is responsible for clothing his own children would cover a child with his coat, indicating that he was now responsible for him. Now I'm going to clothe you. And I'm telling you that Elijah was new to the scene of caring for Elisha, but God had been doing it a long time before Elijah ever heard the name Elisha. And it's the same way with you. No matter who has or who hasn't cared for you, God loves you with an everlasting love. And he has shaped you for his purposes. Do you know the first purpose that you have from God is to receive his love That's the first purpose you have from God. Not to do anything, not to go anywhere. It's to receive his love. Why is that? Because people who never receive God's love don't go on to glorify God with their lives. Right? And when you understand how God thinks about you, you're going to want to do everything you can to please him. Because God loves you just like he loved Elisha. And he's got good plans for you, just like he did for Elisha. Now, let's move to verse number 19. And let's see the second part, found by Elijah. Found by Elijah. During his time of discouragement, Elijah had prayed to God twice and said, God, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one in Israel left who has a heart for God. And like we mentioned before, when you have too much time on your hands, you get tricked into thinking deceitful things, right? The New Testament word for this is beguiled. You get tricked by yourself, right? You don't have to admit it, but have you ever been tricked by yourself, right? Think, man, if I ate that whole chocolate cake, I'd feel really good, right? If I took care of that whole uh, crater, crater, that whole, what word am I saying? Container. That, how could you get crater and container mixed up? If I took care of that whole container of ice cream, things will go good. I'm going to sleep really well tonight. Yeah, you got tricked. Okay, so you have tricked yourself. And uh, before uh, Elijah had been so discouraged and said, God, I'm the only one left. And now God has given him a to-do list. And uh, Elijah, as he got the, the to-do list, you, you see what God told him? Verse 18, yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal and every mouth which hath not kissed him. And so God says, by the way, Elijah, you're not the only one left. There are 7,000. Now, how many understand that 7,000 is bigger than one? Right? You understand that? I, I'm asking because there are government mathematicians who would not understand that. 
right? <laughs> they, they would clearly not get that one. Uh, 7,000 is bigger than one. It's greater than. And uh, there were all these people who had not bowed to idols. Elisha was loved by God, and he loved God in return. He wasn't a prophet, yeah, and yet God counted him in the number of those who had been faithful. You know, the measure of your faithfulness has nothing to do with your earthly occupation. It has everything to do with your eternal preparation. You are living your one and only life for eternity, for God's purposes. That's what Elisha was doing. Uh, even though he was a landowner running a farm for his parents. And, and so Elijah went to find him. And God had given him this clue that Elisha lived in Abel Mehola. Okay? That's where he lived. And so Elijah went to find Abel Mehola. And maybe Elijah already knew Shaphat, Elijah's, Elisha's father. We're not sure. But here he comes. He shows up at the place. And as he walks up to the place, <clears throat> there was Elisha out in one of the fields running his own yoke of oxen and plow. And, uh, you know, it, it looks like from the passage that he was not only running his own, own yoke of oxen and plow, he was supervising 11 other guys doing the same thing. And uh, so there are 12 yoke of oxen out there. When Elijah found him, he was already busy. And so there was clearly uh, this early evidence that he had a heart for God. He was one of 7,000 who hadn't bowed to Baal. And there's evidence that he was a diligent worker. Years ago, uh, a pastor I worked for said something curious. And it took me quite a while to figure out how deeply profound it really was. Here's what he said. If you need something done... Ask a busy person. And I, first time I heard it, I'm like, why would I ask a busy person? I should ask somebody who's not busy, right? But you know what I've come to find out? That his saying is absolutely true. If you are in a crunch, don't ask a non-busy person, okay? Don't ask a lazy person to help you. He'll always turn out to be unreliable, there will be all sorts of excuses why he couldn't or didn't get it done. But somehow the busy person, the person with character, just gets it done. Even though he's got actual reasons why he shouldn't be able to participate. I, I would rather have ten doers than a hundred excuse makers. And I think we all know people that, that when they tell you something's going to get done, you don't ever have to even think about it again. It's going to happen. And then we know people that have to be repeatedly inspected, called back to the job, and policed to the point where it would have just been much less hassle to do it all yourself, right? Now, we used to call those people children. Now we call them the American workforce, <clears throat> right? So we've got to teach our kids uh, that when you do a job, do it right the first time. Uh, when I was a kid, I was probably at about ninth or 10th grade, and in the summer, my dad said, you got a new job. This summer, you are going to paint the outside of our apartment building. And my parents had a little apartment out back that they could rent out and get a little extra income. <coughs> and I said, well, I've never painted anything before. And so my dad got a couple bucks, buckets of paint and a paintbrush, 
and uh, one of those old scrapers, and he said, okay, go ahead. And he went to work every day, and I was supposed to go out and paint this apartment. And uh, man, I didn't have any idea what I'd do. So I'd go scrape for a couple minutes, and then there's nobody watching, so I'd do other stuff. And then my sisters would come and check to make sure it was actually working. Mom would have them come check. And I'd pick up the thing. And it took me a whole summer to paint the outside of that apartment. You know, the whole summer. And it was torture the whole way. You know, now I could probably paint that apartment in a day. But back then, it was like the end of the world. And I don't know if you were a kid and your parents ever made you work in the garden and that row of beans looked like it was four miles long, right? And now you go back to your old home place where you grew up, and the bean row is like as long as the front row of the building here. Like, what in the world was I so upset about? It's because you're learning to work. And you know what? Somebody had to teach you. Somebody had to put you to the grindstone and police you and build character in you. Character does not grow by itself. It has to be implemented. And the most effective trait that you could possibly pass on to the next generation is dependability. In fact, it's the greatest of all abilities. I think that some of the most gifted people on earth have proven to be independable, right? So, some of the most talented people are not dependable. Some of the highest paid people aren't dependable. Congress. Uh, anybody can be dependable. There is no socioeconomic requirement for faithfulness, right? There isn't any title that comes with faithfulness automatically attached to it. You just got to step up and do it, no matter who you are and what your position is. And Elisha was being uh, busy. He was dependable when Elijah found him. So you don't just become dependable after getting a certain position. That never works. Uh, I remember many years ago, Amy and I were church planners in the north end of Boise, and uh, sometimes you'd have somebody who was coming to church off and on, and, and a little connected, a little disconnected, and we'd have this bright idea. We're like, hey, if we make this person an usher, maybe he'll become more faithful, right? If this person becomes a Sunday school teacher, Maybe that'll take them to the next level of dependability. And, and I'm here to tell you that's not the way things work, okay? If somebody isn't dependable, there is no job or title or promotion that will make him or her dependable. You actually have to start by looking for people who are already dependable. And then you'll end up with dependable people. Now, that's what God did when he sent Elijah to find Elisha. Go look for somebody who's already faithful. And so here comes Elijah to the house, and he, he walks over to Elisha. He passes by him, and it's kind of this mysterious thing. He never says anything like, hey, how's it going? I'm Elijah. I'm a prophet. Apparently, Elisha already knew who he was. Uh, Elijah was uh, kind of renowned for his appearance, he was also renowned for his smell, okay? So it could be that Elisha noticed both right away. And Elijah walked by, threw his mantle on him, and he immediately knew what was happening. Let's talk about forsaking personal plans. Forsaking personal plans. 
And in verse 20, 21, look at the first words. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah. Did you catch that? He left the oxen and ran after Elijah. It's similar to when the disciples dropped their ships to land for Sukkot and followed Jesus. Elisha was willing to abandon his present plans. Now, I could imagine that maybe you've noticed that we live in a culture and a generation of people who are sometimes so connected to their current plans, even if they're meaningless and trivial, that they will not leave them to come and help with anything else. And we see this all the time in our house now. Uh, Our little kids have the little tablet things, right? And if they're doing the tablet, and you say, hey, uh, Sophie, Titus, come in here and help with the dishes. And then you hear nothing. Right? You don't hear any pitter-patter or little foots. Sophie, Titus, come, to, come in here and help with the dishes. And finally you have to go look and see, oh, they got the tablet thing. And you have to tell them, turn off the tablet so you can come do something else. Right? And sometimes you have to tell them twice. And sometimes with Titus, you got to tell them four times. Right? Now, why would that be? <clears throat> Because people don't like to forsake their personal plans, even if their personal plans are trivial or meaningless. You know that most of the people in this world who tell you how busy they are, are actually busy doing things that mean nothing. Right? I'm so busy. My life is so complicated. And let's write down what you do on paper. And when you write down what they do on paper, like 95 out of the 100 things you write down mean nothing, right? And you're like, you you should have just mixed in the word nothing because that's what all the rest of this list is. I'm so busy. Then sit down and write out what you're actually doing that matters in life. And then we'll find out how busy you really are. Now, that's practical advice. That's not from the scriptures. That's free. Okay, just throwing that out there for you. I figured everybody needs a freebie sometimes on a Sunday where they can just get some practical advice. Uh, so he left the oxen, he ran after Elijah, and uh, he's willing to abandon his present plans. Now I'm reading this, <clears throat> he's got 12 yoke of oxen, and I'm thinking, if you're going to be a farmer, you're probably going to need your oxen and your equipment to continue your trade, right? And when Elisha turned back and sacrificed the yoke of oxen, it was a feast of celebration that God was working in his life. And Elisha had a no-turning-back mindset toward God's calling on his life. When Elisha proclaimed uh, that feast and slew his yoke of oxen, it showed that he's setting aside any safety net of going back to his old job. Uh, He was signifying that the work of God was more important than any other pursuit. Much like the quote about Moses in Hebrews 11. I love this quote. It says, he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. And many people start out serving God, but they leave a safety net behind just in case it doesn't work out. 
They commit to Christ, but only partially. I think I've told this story before a couple of years ago, but I looked at this story about William Borden. And in 1904, William Borden graduated from high school in Chicago. He was the heir uh, to the Borden family fortune, the great uh, dairy fortune. And he was already wealthy. For his high school graduation present, his parents, he was 16, they gave him a trip around the world. And as he traveled through Asia, the Middle East and Europe, he felt a growing burden for the world's hurting people. And finally, he wrote home about his desire to be a missionary. And one friend expressed belief that, uh, expressed disbelief that, that Bill was throwing himself away as a missionary. A story often associated with Borden says that in response, he wrote two words in the back of his Bible, no reserves. He just wrote it in there for, save that one, no reserves, nothing to fall back on. And so even though he was wealthy, he went to Yale University in 1905, looked like just all the other freshmen. Very quickly, however, his classmates noticed something unusual about him. And it wasn't that he had lots of money. Uh, one of them wrote this in their journal. He came to college far ahead of us spiritually. He had already given his heart in full surrender to Christ and had really done it. We who were his classmates learned to lean on him and find in him a strength that was solid as a rock just because of this settled purpose and consecration. During his college years, Bill Borden made an entry in his personal journal that defined what uh, his classmates were seeing in him. That entry simply said, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. That sounds like a pretty good sentence, right? Say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. Now his first disappointment at Yale came uh, when the university president spoke in a chapel service about the student's need of having a fixed purpose. And after that speech, uh, Borden wrote, he neglected to say what our purpose should be and where we should get the ability to persevere and the strength to resist temptations. And as he looked at the Yale faculty and the student body of 1905, uh, he was sorrowful. I'm glad he is not around today to look at the Yale faculty of 2022. Goodness gracious. That he saw uh, the end of this empty humanistic philosophy, moral weakness, ruined lives. And, and so during his first semester, he started something that would transform campus life. Uh, one of his friends described it. He said, it was well on in the first term when Bill and I began to pray together in the morning before breakfast. I can't say positively whose suggestion it was, but I feel sure it must have originated with Bill. We'd been meeting only a short time when a third student joined and soon after a fourth. The time was spent in prayer after a brief reading of Scripture. Uh, Bill's handling of Scripture was helpful. He'd read to us from the Bible, show us something that God had promised, and then proceed to claim the promise with assurance. Borden's small prayer move, movement group gave birth to a movement that soon spread across the campus. By the end of his first year, 150 freshmen were meeting weekly for Bible study and prayer. By the time Bill Borden was a senior, 
1,000 of Yale's 1,300 students were meeting in prayer groups. Borden made it his habit to seek out what he called the most incorrigible students and try to bring them to salvation. In his sophomore year, he organized Bible study groups, divided up the class of 300 or more, each man interested in taking a certain number so that all might, if possible, be reached. Uh, the names were given over one by one. The question asked, who will take care of this person? Who will take care of this person? And when it came to someone that was thought to be kind of a hard proposition, there would be an ominous pause. And uh, nobody wanted the responsibility. And Bill's voice would pipe up, put him down to me. Borden's outreach ministry was not confined to the Yale campus. He, he cared about widows and orphans and the disabled. He rescued drunks from the streets of New Haven. And to try to rehabilitate them, he founded the Yale Hope Mission. One of his friends wrote that he might often be found in the lower parts of the city at night, on the street, in a cheap lodging house or some restaurant to which he had taken a poor hungry fellow to feed him, seeking to lead men to Christ. Borden's missionary call narrowed to the Muslim Kansu people in China. Fixing his eyes on the goal, Borden never wavered. He also challenged his classmates to consider foreign missionary service. One of them said he certainly was one of the strongest characters I've ever known. And he put backbone into the rest of us at college. There was real iron in him. I always felt he was the stuff martyrs were made of and heroic missionaries of more modern times. Although he was a millionaire, Bill seemed to realize always that he must be about his father's business and not wasting time in the pursuit of amusement. Uh, he refused to join a fraternity. He did more with his classmates, though, than ever before and, and presided over the huge student missionary conference hailed at Yale and served as president of the Honor Society. Upon graduation, he turned down all the high-paying offers and he wrote two more words in his Bible. Uh, underneath his earlier words, he wrote, no retreat. So now no, he had no reserve and no retreat. Uh, he went on to do some graduate work at Princeton, and then he sailed for China. Because he was hoping to work with Muslims, he stopped first in Egypt to study Arabic. While there, he contracted spinal meningitis. And when, within a month, 25-year-old William Borden was dead. When the news of William Whiting Borden's death was cabled back to the U.S., the story was carried by every American newspaper. Uh, a wave of sorrow went round the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself, in a way so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice wrote Taylor in her introduction to his biography. Now, was Borden's untimely death a waste? Not in God's perspective. As the story has it, prior to his death, Borden had written two more words in the back of his Bible. Underneath the words, no reserves and no retreat, scribbled in words on his deathbed were two additional words, no regrets. No regrets. And if you're living for God's cause, your life cannot possibly be wasted. That's why Elisha left the oxen and ran after Elijah. 
Now, these last two verses, we also see Elisha following God's direction. And that's the final part of our message this morning. Following God's direction. After honoring his parents with a, a farewell, Elisha went after Elijah. And look what it says about him. And ministered unto him. He went after Elijah and ministered unto him. And this is where so many would ministers get confused. They think that ministry means I get a title. I get influence. I get people who will serve me. And actually the scriptural model is this. Leadership equals serving. Jesus came not to be ministered to, but to minister. And Elisha ministered unto Elijah. Now, you will never succeed in leadership until you understand and accept fellowship. And those who participate in God's will should expect to find fulfillment only in living as servants. As we walk through Elisha's life over this month, we're going to see him serving others. In fact, most of his miracles were attached to helping or protecting or blessing others. There's so much that we can all learn from the servant's heart in this man of God. But for this morning, I want to focus for a few minutes on this simple question in our faith challenge. And this is a big question. Are you ready to participate in God's purpose for your life? Are you ready to participate in God's purpose for your life? That's where a double portion starts. That's where serving God starts. See, there is no question that God has a purpose for you. No question. He does. It is a certainty. He has fearfully and wonderfully made you to glorify him and serve others. The question always comes back to this. Will you participate in God's purpose for your life? See, God won't force you to do it. He won't coerce you to do it. But he has called you to do it. And the blessings of a life of service do not even compare with the fruits of a selfish life. See, the self-centered person puts all his energy and all his resources into pleasing himself. And he's never satisfied. Have you ever noticed this? Uh, People who put all this energy into pleasing themselves are the most unsatisfied people on earth. But the person who participates in God's purpose puts all his energy and all his resources into pleasing God, and he has no regrets. Just like Borden, he lives with no regrets. So Elisha knew that following God is the ultimate prize. And I want to look at this, verse number 21, one last time. I want you to see this last sentence. Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. He didn't know what the future was going to be yet. He didn't know what it was going to entail. He didn't know where they were going to go. He just knew that he was called. And he knew that if he followed God, God would provide for him. And I think that's where faith comes into play for so many of us, where we say, you know, I don't know if I'm willing to do God's will, 
until I know what it is. But God doesn't reveal the next step of his will until you take the first step, right? Abraham, God said, leave Ur of the Chaldees and head toward a land that I will show you. And so Abraham packs everything up. They get the caravan together. I'm sure Sarah said, hey, where are we going? We don't know yet. We're just going, right? How long is it going to take to get there? I don't know. Uh, well, where do we, like, live? Not sure. We're just going to go, and God's going to show us. And it took time, years and years, for God to finally show them exactly what they're supposed to do. That is the life, not only of a Christian missionary, but it's the life of a Christian servant, to do what God has called us to do. You know, the safest place you could possibly be is in God's will for your life. Right? So many people try to manipulate that and control that. Like, I got to keep things safe. I got to keep things tightened up. I got to keep things where I want them to be. But you know, the safest place you could possibly be is where God's called you to be. And to do what God has called you to do. And as we go through this series and we see what a double portion actually means. And the cry for a double portion that Elisha is going to give. Uh, we're going to find out. Uh, what it means to value God's priority as your highest priority. And so we, we finished with this big question today. Are you willing to participate in God's purpose for your life? He's got one. Are you willing to participate in it? Let me pray with you. God, I thank you for each one who's here this morning. I thank you for all the boys and girls and the way that you have prepared each of their lives to be used by you. And I pray that you would make us all willing and ready to bring our hearts before you, even this morning, and to say, God, I'm willing to do what you've made me to do. I am ready to participate in whatever your purpose is for my life. I want what you want for me. And God, if we had that attitude, We'd be able to change the world by your power and in your kingdom. And so I pray that you would bless us now as we leave this place. And I pray that you'd guide us by your grace. We ask it in your name. Amen. Uh, thank you for coming today. If, if you don't, uh, if you think about it, if you remember, pray for me uh, over these next couple weeks. I'm headed uh, tomorrow at about noon. I leave for Congo. And then I'll be back about a week from Saturday. So be praying for our meetings there and that God will work in every part of it and the flights and, and everything that needs to take place, okay? Love you, everybody. We'll see you soon. God bless. Yeah.